Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the fourth and last in a series of podcasts in which we're looking at a collaboration in R&D between the UK and China. My guest this week is Dr. Karen Salt, Deputy Director for Research, Culture and Environment at UKRI. Dr. Salt, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me. I'm extremely pleased to join the podcast, the final one, and to engage with the audience. Fantastic. Well, listen, we know there are a number of positive opportunities for UK collaboration with China in research and development, but we also know that there are some issues and some concerns. What are some of the key concerns? Well, this is a really good question, and I think it means we need to start asking, I think, a different set of questions, actually, to be able to to answer it and get, get underneath it. And and I'd start really with the the notion of collaboration. You know, any new emerging or established partnership, they need to understand what the end goal is. And they also need to consider what it might take to maintain the collaboration. So in, in certain instances, the end goal is to produce a thing, right? There's some sort of outcome or there's some sort of output that is connected to it. And of course, that might work in a whole a bunch of different sets of settings. If everyone agrees <laughs> and shares the same goal at the beginning, you can actually get that desired end game uh, at the end. Well, this is a tougher situation with China and other partners, some who are expanding rapidly, Um, and some who want to control a bit more of the types of materials and services or relationships that they essentially have, including the data. So this means essentially that those involved in collaborations need to keep their actual partnership and their relationship alive, understanding what goes into really good, healthy, ethical collaborating and partnering, while they might also need to navigate what could be a, a quite bumpy political or policy ride as relationships would adapt, especially at the governmental level. And we, we are definitely seeing this with China. So there are some who are new to this type of collaboration and they will need to keep quite a few things in play as they develop the, the deep relationships needed to maintain collaborations with Chinese partner organizations. There is a, a really strong push right now to really start to gather and maintain case studies and to create networks and to kind of scale up kind of city region relationships with various partners in in China and across various Chinese regions, as well as across and into the UK, and for people to talk about what has worked and what has not worked and to really start to share this information. That is a really, really positive sign to see this type of knowledge being shared to better enable the new folks who are trying to set up relationships, who are attracted to certain sets of partnering or certain sets of technologies because we will definitely need to do a whole range of things moving forward. And that includes thinking a lot about due diligence, thinking really carefully about security concerns, but also thinking about mobility and the shared movement of people. Um, We have a significant number of postgraduate researchers in the UK who are from Chinese areas. Um, So they are Chinese nationals coming in. But we also have a number of folks who are based in the UK who would like to go and work in Chinese institutions and engage and interact. And, you know, it's really healthy for us to start thinking about how do we share this knowledge going back and forth about um, maintaining these relationships, building these sets of networks, um, and really thinking about kind of scaling up and not trying to jump and create a giant, enormous institute tomorrow as the only option moving forward. 
So that's a whole set of different things. And I think you set up quite well, both the opportunities and some of the things that people need to bear in mind. And I know UKRI has recently instituted a, a program under the banner of Trusted Research and Innovation. Tell us a little bit about this program. What is it and why has it been established? One of the foundational reasons for creating a, a Trusted Research and Innovation program which I lead for UKRI. One was to recognize uh, that government, as well as various uh, various different departments um, and, and, and many others across the research and innovation sector, they've been thinking about security, managing risk, mitigating threats, and really thinking about what maintains or how do you maintain a healthy interna- international collaboration. So this is not new to a certain extent. This is, this is old work from export controls all the way through to those who've been thinking about tech transfer or IP or definitely dual use types of of aspects. And we've seen some of this work coalesce, you know, probably about five or six years ago to eventually become work from the Center for the Protection of National Infrastructure or um, NCSC to become a kind of pack of knowledge and information. Sometimes checklists were attached to that. Um, and and an additional set of information. And I think within UKRI, what we wanted to do was both respond to this set of information. So trusted research is a a moniker that comes from CP&I. Originally, we we didn't make this up, but we were recognizing that across the world, there are research integrity programs. There are other sets of things that are also addressing these questions about managing risk and mitigating threats. And For us, it was, okay, well, how do we understand what that language looks like for the UK, borrowing it, but also starting to broaden and think much more systematically across the whole structure. So for us, you know, we're really thinking very carefully about what does this mean around mobility, to really think about what this means around IP, definitely export controls, but also security around our personnel, thinking around what does this mean around vetting, facilities, data, all the things that actually, when you start doing trusted research work, you you very quickly run into and and you start thinking about, okay, well, what does this mean to do responsible innovation? What does it mean to really engage in trying to do these different sets of work? So for us, we've created a framework, a set of principles that underpin it. And then we started drawing together the various areas, the functions and the different departments and units across UKRI, because obviously we've got 8,000 members of staff, 5,000 of them are based directly within centers and institutes and units. They are directly engaged in doing research from our folks in the Antarctic all the way through to those who may be involved in space, space research. So we have a real practical understanding and need to get underneath what does it mean to do due diligence around these sets of work and to really concretely understand what is a risk envelope or, or, or a risk um, uh, around collaboration look like, looks like. But of course, we also fund um, an incredible amount of work across all sorts of different institutions, national labs, public sector research enterprises, universities, and then we're a delivery arm directly for government. So that means we really do need to start to think about this from various different perspectives, from subcontracts all the way through to thinking about how to keep our staff safe. And we have a senior security advisor who we work really closely with with this program, including on our uh, with our risk and assurance side of the of the patch, if you will, within UKRI. 
so there is there are aspects of terms and conditions that are around grants all the way through to thinking about due diligence when working with companies um, who may be involved in different sets of work, all the way through to engaging quite carefully and collaboratively with universities and other R&I or research performing organizations. So it's a really vital, I think, program that ably demonstrates the type of work that's needed at the organizational level to really make sure international collaboration flourishes, because that's really our mantra. We want it to flourish and to go forward. So you've talked very clearly about the difference between the research that you're actually doing in your own institutions and then the research that you fund in this vast range of other groups of organisations, the largest of which perhaps are UK universities. Do you think that those organisations, universities and others have the right information, the right skills that they need to make informed decisions that they're going to have to make going forward? Really good question, Gavin. And I think I probably would have said maybe five years ago, probably in a pretty emphatic no. And and I think part of that would have been how siloed a lot of the work was. It wasn't necessarily that there weren't people who were doing this or didn't have the knowledge, but it's, it's probably one of the problematics we see around trusted research more broadly is that for, for some general folks, they think it just means emerging technology or they think it just means dual use, you know, something that has a potential military application. And that's it. That they will, that, that's all they're imagining under trusted research or even national security uh, risk more broadly. Whereas actually when you're involved in trusted research or, or when you start to really unpick and start to think of, well, where, where could interference happen with my portfolio? Where are my greatest risks across the work that I'm doing? Then you start to realize, well, how, hang on, this, this education program that we export to this other place, this uh, overseas campus that we've set up, this mobility program we've got to move people back and forth, the type of data we've got, the, the, where our servers are based, it actually is a much, much bigger issue. And, and it's much, much healthier for an institution to not just go, I'm going to protect one tiny corner over here and I'm going to just let all sorts of risk happen in the other place is actually when you look look at risk across the board, you realize actually what you're trying to think about is how do I, how do I have healthy relationships? And that means where do you think your, your risks sit? And then how do you create a system and a structure where it's just normal hygiene? It's like, it's like basic normal practice. The same way we do health and safety now to do almost any type of work and activity, we, we also need to try to do that same thing around security. And it's been really exciting over the last number of years to see the research and innovation system really come to grips with that. We've got universities now who are hiring trusted research directors. We've got a whole number and host of different programs and groups that are set up through Universities UK that are focused some on export control, but a whole others that are actually starting to get groups talking to each other and really starting to think about training and what sort of skills need to live underneath that. And you will see now that Bayes has set up a research collaboration advice team that is set up across various regions to work very closely with universities. And again, continue that, that continuous feedback. And we're at a really good place now in the UK where I think our system is collaborative at its core. So what we've got is we've got a whole set of entities, whether or not that's UK intelligence um, agencies, all the way through to something like the investment security unit that is attached to Bayes, 
that is the, the sort of operational arm um, of the National Security and Investment Act, we've got these groups talking to universities, right? We've got universities now sitting and talking with UKRI. We've got UKRI talking to the National Academies and the Learned Societies. And we're having these conversations globally because we realize what we're talking about are global systems and global protocols that really, while we're, while we're looking at the UK, they got to exchange and interact with other systems, especially if we're talking about international collaborators. So what we've got now is, like, is, a, is a system that is talking a lot to each other. Now that has its risks now in the sense that we may be, you know, at that tipping point of having stood up 74,000 different organizations and entities that are now going to help us all move forward when really what we need is these groups all talking to each other and creating like, well, what does a risk map look like? What does the system look like? Who talks to whom? How is information shared? Because what we don't want to create is a bureaucratic nightmare. And we definitely don't want to make super redundancies in the system. We want this to be as proportionate as it needs to be, but also one that is clever um, and recognizes how it could actually work together seamlessly. Part of this feels to me like a little bit of a, of a balance or possibly incentives pulling in slightly different directions. One is the absolute need for trusted research, but the other one is a sort of a general push to increase international research collaboration, and particularly with China, because China is a, a growing economy that has a lot to contribute to some fantastic research. How does UKRI kind of balance these slightly different incentives, and how does it explain that balance to the people that it funds? Very good question. And I think, uh, I think easily, actually. One is we are funded through public money. I think the public wants us to go where cool stuff's happening and want to invest in that. And we want to have the best and brightest sat beside each other producing brilliant stuff. So if that best and brightest is in China, if that best and brightest is in the North Pole, doesn't matter. We're gonna go where that exciting research is happening. And then I think the onus is on all of us. And that's actually one of the, one of the key parts, I think, around where we are with trusted research is that we are trying to talk as a system and a sector to say, we all have shared responsibilities here. The individual researcher has responsibilities around their own set of work, their own data, their own machinery, you know, how they engage and what they do and how they interact, all the way through to a funder who would have relationships with a research institution, right? That we, you would have to uh, make sure that you have, you know, both groups understand what is their responsibility moving forward. And then how do we build in place the right set of kind of checklists and questions and queries that ultimately, again, going back to that kind of health and safety space, which doesn't say somebody over here is going to dictate to you exactly what you can do, who you can talk to, and what that looks like. We're trusting that our research and innovation community knows what that work looks like, and they know who are the, the people to go forward with. What we hope to give is the guidance and the protocols that sort of say, actually, this is too risky for you to think about doing this on your own. You're going to need a lot more support. You're probably going to need a lot more kind of risk awareness. And in some cases, you might actually need to get a lot of advice from those who've been engaged in this sort of work uh, in the past before you sort of casually move forward to create whatever might be an MOU or an agreement, much less a funded research project moving forward. And, and I think that that is, that's good, that's healthy. It's the same way we would do any other type of funding and any other type of, 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 of project, whether or not it has commercial application, 
all the way through to thinking about safeguarding and protecting the people who are engaged in that research, going into a conflict zone, for example, or if there's other types of risks that we need to mitigate. So for me, I think it's really about trying to find that balance between what is really good risk mitigation and really thinking about that risk awareness And then, you know, when do we realize and recognize that actually you can't make all risk go away with research innovation inherent to the work itself is the risk that stuff doesn't necessarily work out the way that you anticipated. But we we do it anyway, right, because we understand the value of the contribution of of, of, of that those products or those ideas or that knowledge or that information. And what do we do? We mitigate the risk for that. Right to make sure that we, we can get to completed projects down in, at the end. And national security works exactly, exactly the same way. I think the added, probably the added benefit of really thinking about national security risks, as I said, is that you can take things out of the hands of an individual researcher to think that it's all their responsibility to, to deal with what are national security risks for the, for the country or for the UK as a whole, we have a whole set of people going further and further and up the chain through government who that is their job. And what we do and what we need is to make sure we make those, you know, keep that relationship quite tight so that people can get the right set of advice and information at the right time so that they can make the best decision depending upon, you know, where, where we are at and the chain. So I, I think it's, as you, you said, there's a tension but I think it's a natural tension that exists across other sets of things. And what we, what we don't want to do is be a sector or be a system that's afraid of confronting and dealing with these things and thinking that is too risky. I won't ever think about doing that work or I will never work with a partner from X place because it's too complicated. Um, I, I, as a, again, my point before, we want to go where the great work is happening and we don't want to make any snap decisions that's, that pulls us out of being at the table where, where that work is happening and to grow it and develop it. So I want to ask you, there's one other concern that's often expressed, and it's not actually directly related to the risks of research collaboration with Chinese institutions, but it's actually to do with other actions of the Chinese state. And these are often rolled up in human rights issues. To what extent should these types of issues feed into questions of research collaboration? This is a, this is a complex one. I mean, and I think it, it's complicated in the sense that in certain situations, we can see some of these things play out um, actually within terms and conditions and, and, uh, and information, whether or not that would be, you know, if you cast your eye on a, on a past ODA related funding there would be some sets of, of terms and conditions that would talk about um, safeguarding folks. It would also talk about um, gender equality or gender mainstreaming. There'd be a whole set of things that are that is not specifically about the research itself or the innovation or the product or the, or the, or the, or the product. So we've 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 had these kinds of conversations within the sector, and depending upon how the funding has flowed they have been a requirement or something um, set aside alongside of the collaboration agreements, but they're not mandated across the board. Um, again, unless they're tied to something as I was describing with um, the way we see ODA funding having been built up. So this now moves into a place where there are more ethical considerations that it's not just 
research ethics in that sense that an ethics committee might review and look at. These are those sorts of ethical partnering or the values of the set of the partners that you're engaging with. We're, we're definitely seeing that as various different organizations and institutions talk about democratic values or they talk about freedom of speech or they're, they're starting to talk about a whole range of things around partnering with people with those sorts of shared values. You can hear certain governments using that kind of language. Now, that is a challenge to maintain that, let's say the government at a governmental level, when you're chasing where the great research is, is, is happening. And, and I think we want to maintain that sort of freedom for researchers to be able to know where that research is happening. But we also, at the same time, want to make sure we're listening to essentially those who fund us to make sure that we are both aligned with the various missions and the visions of our ministers for science and others who are thinking really, I think, beneficially about, about our system. But also, I think we wouldn't want to do anything as a sector that undermines the British government. We wouldn't want to do anything that undermines the, the health and safety of, of researchers who are, are, are out doing work. So we, you know, for me, there's, there's a part of this that is, okay, well, what are the values of that institution? Who do I want to partner with? How do I want to engage with that institution or that organization? And, and we've seen this around fossil fuel investment, right? Around, around universities. We've seen it in cultural organizations who are also grappling with similar sets of, of questions. That's why I'm saying some of this is not new to add the, the questions around these sorts of ethical concerns. But what we are seeing is quite a lot of conversation around human rights, human rights violations or human rights questions, specifically with China. Now, those who actually work in the human rights area will actually say that if you broaden this conversation, a whole set of nations fall under some concerns around human rights. And for some, that, that lens might even be pointed at the UK in terms of um, aspects of, of human rights reports and documentation. So I don't wanna pull anybody away from really grappling with human rights and really wanting to fundamentally think about it. I think, it's, I think, I think it's, it is big fields do, do, who do this work. There's, there's an incredible amount of data and information that's out there. I, I don't question, but I do ponder why human rights is attached to China only in the conversation around international collaborating uh, collaboration when there are multiple nations who we might want to raise similar sets of questions within the UK and, and start to ask different sets of questions um, around those relationships. But fundamentally, I think these are healthy types of questions for institutions to ask themselves, but these are fundamentally about who do you want to have relationships with and who do you want to build them with? And people should be asking themselves this question all the time um, in terms of who do they want to partner with? Um, who do they want to co-author with? Who do they want to sit at the table with and break bread with um, uh, moving forward? That, that again, that's, what, that's how you have healthy partnerships. If you understand the, the players who you're dealing with at all times. Well, you certainly give us this, a huge amount to think about. That's all we've got time for today. But Dr. Karen Salt, thank you very much. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Karen Salt, Deputy Director for Research, Culture and Environment at UKRI. The topic of research and development collaboration with China 
was discussed at a Foundation for Science and Technology event on the 27th of April. A recording of that event and details of all the speakers can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.